So Romans 14 and verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers another day, so one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Without regard, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to the Lord. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to the Lord. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be both the Lord of the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us must give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let will make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine, or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. One of the, um, the big uh, apologetic issues that people who wouldn't call themselves Christians often ask go, go, goes along the lines of this. They say, well, if God is so am- amazing and awesome and powerful, and this gospel you talk of is so good... If it's such good news, able to to transform lives, to unite people from around the world, to really make a difference, then why is the church so divided? Why is the history of the church littered with, with so much pain and so much heartache and we've got these denominations and factions and cliques and Christians being unkind to each other? All that kind of stuff going on. 
Why is the church so divided? The gospel is such good news. And to be fair to the question, it's quite a complicated one with a complicated answer. Probably at root, much of church division is due to human sin. And churches, it seems to me, divide for good reasons or for bad reasons. For for good reasons, such as, well, if somebody has strayed off track and they no longer believe the gospel of grace, then it's right to, to say, we love you, but we need to move apart. If you drift away from the central truths of the gospel then that's a dangerous thing. And so you need to start something. If another key doctrine is gone back on, or people drift in terms of morality, it seems to me it's a good reason, actually, to begin a church. It's necessary, it's good, and it's right. And Paul, very quickly in his letters, will come down hard on a church where they strayed from a key truth. Think of... That the, the situation in Galatians, in chapter 1. They have strayed from the gospel of grace, and so he is hard on them. It seems to me there are good reasons to split, but there are very bad reasons as well. Reasons of personal preference, perhaps secondary issues, or as Paul puts it in our passage here in verse 1, uh, disputable matters. Issues where, as far as we can tell, as we read the scriptures, there there might well be room for breadth. You can see Bible-believing Christians having different takes on things. They've weighed the evidence, and they come out in a different place. And you can still be a Christian, and it's okay to disagree. But this all raises a a great question for us. How do we treat Christians that we disagree with? How do we treat other Christians that we disagree with? Paul's been telling us in previous weeks, it is all worship. He says, start of chapter 12, Jesus wants every single bit of your life. Every bit is for him. Every bit is to be a God bit. There is no bit of your life that he does not want. It's all for him. And so last time we saw that we had to love one another. In fact, that is what stood behind the Old Testament law. Behind all of it, it was about love. And yet family and community and those kind of buzzwords are lovely, assuming we're all clones and we all think the same about everything. But what do you do when someone comes into your community with very different ideas, perhaps from a different church background? perhaps a different way of doing things, and you disagree with them. What do you do in a situation like Paul here, speaking to the Roman church, where you've got presumably half of your church from a Jewish background and half of your church from a Gentile background, a non-Jewish background? And if you've spent your whole life not eating bacon sandwiches, and then you go for brunch at Oxfork with your mates from church, your new friends, and they're chomping away on on bacon and sausage sandwiches, what do you do with yourself? What's the way forward? (coughs) Or actually what happens is, and we pray that it would, if we begin to make an impact on some of the different cultures and communities in, in this area, and they come to faith, and suddenly Sundays look a whole lot more diverse. How do we navigate through that diversity? 
What things are cultural? What things really matter? Do they just have to lump in and be like us and do things as we do? Because that's how we've always done it. What does the gospel demand for what your church meetings look like? Or how you treat one another? It's a really important question because if we just end up dividing and setting up two churches or three churches or four churches or five churches or six churches where we can all be happy and not challenged by these people who are different from us, then what does that say about the gospel? And what does it say about God? It says when people look at us and they look at our church, they see that God is not the big one true God with a gospel for all the world. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. He's just a little God who's Lord of these people who are quite similar and quite samey, really and end up being quite like me. So when we disagree, and when we squabble, and when we fight, and churches divide for secondary and wrong reasons, then it seems to me the gospel is undermined, and God is dishonoured. And maybe even people who are in the church just kind of walk away, confused. It seems to me Romans 14 has an awful lot to say to that kind of a question, that sort of a scenario. People like us. I want to give you, first of all, just a broad overview of the passage and the section. I'm aware there's a lot of verses there and we're not going to be able to look at it in huge depth, but to give you a broad overview and then to zoom in on the two different sections we'll be um, thinking about. Um, So, broadly, it seems to me there are two halves to these verses. Verse 1 to 12 primarily is about judging or or not judging those people with different views to us. That's 1 to 12. And 1 to 13, sorry, and 13 to the end is primarily about how we're to act towards those who have different views to us. So 1 to 12 is not judging, and 13 to the end is how do we deal with those who are very different from us. But it seems to me the whole section really is going towards chapter 15 and verses 5 to 7. That seems to me to be the conclusion, the climax of where it's all going. So 15 verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. If you've been with us in the mornings, you might be having a few little bells ringing. That's quite similar language to Philippians 2. This idea of your attitude of mind being that of like Christ. Do you remember Philippians 2? Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In, in Philippi, it seems to be the potential disunity that comes from persecution outside the church. It's pressing in on this church, and cracks are starting to form. In Rome, we don't exactly know, but it's almost certain it's this Jew-Gentile split. And we saw it going right through chapters 9 to 11, if you remember, with Daniel Blanche. That seems to be where the tensions lie. And so two points then for this evening. Verse 1 to 12. Oh, it's there. 
Judging is for Jesus. Okay, he is correcting them. And the big idea here is we are not to judge one another, but rather we are to accept one another. And the problem is they have been judging one another. So if you have a look at a few verses with me, verse 3. You must not judge the one who does eat everything, for God has accepted them. Or verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Or verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? And in judging one another, they have forgotten that Jesus is the judge. He will judge. In fact, only he has the God-given right to judge. And so he continues in verse 10, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Now we're not to judge those with different views and ideas over these disputable matters. No, we are to accept them. It's another recurring word you get again and again. Accept them. We saw it was where it was going in 15 verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. That's how it starts as well. 14 verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak. Why? Verse 3, because God has accepted them. Okay, so that's the general principle. Accept one another rather than judging one another for people who hold different views. The specifics, though, we've got these two groups. So the general principle, accept, don't judge. Jesus is the judge. But then these two groups of the weak and the strong. And before we get cross with Paul and think, hang on, Paul, you're, you're judging the weak there. That's a, a bit inconsistent, isn't it? I don't think he means weak as those inferior. What he means by weak is those with a, with a tender conscience. Okay? And so to, to be strong does not mean powerful or great or the best. Strong means those with a tough conscience. So weak, tender conscience. Strong, tough conscience. If you're, you're more um, visual like me, here's a, an outworking. Here's some flesh on these kind of ideas. So uh, it's barbecue season. You're hosting a barbecue. The sun is just about out. And you've got friends over. And you've got two friends in particular. Think of a, of a man with a tender conscience, first of all. Paul would call him weak. We're going to call him Theodore. He's probably from a Jewish background. At verse 2, he eats only vegetables. And so you know if it's barbecue season, you're going to have to do him some couscous salad. You're going to have to do a vegetable kebab. Um, it's going to be something for him to eat. You're going to make sure you cook it separately for him as well, not with all the rest of the meat. And this guy eats only vegetables. It's interesting, we don't quite know why. The Old Testament didn't actually specify that as a necessity, so probably the reason he doesn't eat meat is because it might have been sacrificed to idols. Just to be sure then, he only eats vegetables. That is Theo. Tender conscience, only vegetables. And then there's Terence. Terence, verse 2 and verse 3, he eats anything and everything. Because Terence knows his Bible. He knows that all food is now clean. He knows that the Old Testament dietary laws have been fulfilled in Christ. 
he knows that the idols are nothing anyway because God is so powerful. And so he tucks into everything and he is thankful. In his mind, it is simple. He eats what he wants. And so Terence says to Theo, well, come on, let me get you a burger. They're very good. Come and have a burger. Tuck into the barbecue goodies. See what you've been missing out on for the last 30 years. It's okay, you can move on now. You can enjoy the good food with us. But it's a step too far for Theo. Because he spent the last 30 years obeying the kosher food laws. His whole life has been based around this diet. And just to give it all up now, just like that, it doesn't work like that. What do you mean you can't have a steak? Come on, Theo, eat up. Just get over it. Come on, enjoy the barbecue. What's wrong with you? And yet you see, eating together is such a picture of the gospel. The fellowship that the gospel brings, uniting around backgrounds and cultures and likes and dislikes and tribes and tongues and nations. Diverse, but united around Christ because of the cross. And to divide over this is just such a clear picture of undoing what God has done. Dividing what God has brought together. We probably don't divide over food in this church or in our culture. But there are lots of things that Christians do divide over. We're very good at dividing. Alcohol is one that springs to mind. Some say, of course you can drink. Others say, of course you can't drink. I remember heated discussions when I was a student with people who told me um, that the wine in Jesus' day was just grape juice. Maybe for one generation it's something like dancing. I was speaking with one of the, um, the toffs, the over 55s from Maldon Road, um, the other morning, uh, telling me that in her youth she was definitely not allowed to dance. And that would have been 30, 40 years ago. But for her it's still an issue. It still kind of grabs her. She's still getting used to this freedom that she has. Maybe it's baptism. Can you baptise babies? Is baptism just for those who have faith in Jesus or for those whose parents have faith in Jesus? What about what, what you ought to wear at the front of church? I remember in previous churches, um, ministry trainees saying, well, just wear shorts, that's what you normally wear. But for some people that's a real problem. What do you wear at the front of church? Maybe someone you will struggle if someone preaches in jeans. Others might be absolutely fine with that. Maybe it's the Sabbath. Should you keep the Sabbath? For some it's a special day with, with church and with family, a day especially for God. And others are laden down with the shopping bags from Tesco. And they say the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. Don't worry about that anymore. Many, many, many more. And just imagine that we start to reach the peoples of Oxford or East Oxford and they start to come in and how do we navigate through these thorny issues? The big principle though over these disputable matters in Paul's eyes is God has accepted them. Now don't you judge them. 
But he continues. And he says this, before you are too quick to snigger at these people and look down your nose at their theological immaturity, he says, how convinced are you by what you believe anyway? Is the reason that you do drink alcohol or you do go dancing or you do baptise babies or you do eat burgers, whatever it may be, is it because, verse 5, you've carefully thought it through? Is it because you are fully convinced in your own mind? Or if you're honest, is it just because you've followed everybody else? We like to be tribal and we like to follow each other. Whether you regard a certain day as special, or whether you eat meat, whatever it might be, you need to have done the work. Verse 5 and 6. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, we need to have done the work to be convinced in our own minds. Because really it's between us and God as to how we behave. We're his. We're accountable to him for our actions. And the problem is, when we judge each other, we end up putting ourselves in the place of God. Because if I see myself as the ultimate judge of right and wrong and you see yourself as the ultimate judge of right and wrong and we disagree, then what happens? We come to blows. We fight. But if we know that Jesus is the judge, then in a sense we can respect each other. We can accept each other. We can be friends and we can agree to disagree. Because actually he is the ultimate judge. But if we're both judging, if we're both putting ourselves in the place of God, then that's what the Bible calls sin. seems to have real echoes from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve wanting to decide what was good and what was bad. So Paul says, verses 1 to 12, Jesus will judge. Judging is for Jesus. You can leave it to him. It's going to be okay. He'll be good at his job. You don't need to do it. And actually, rather than looking down your noses at one another and judging each other, what you ought to be doing is you ought to be helping each other. Second point. Verse 13 to 23, liberty is for loving. And what we mean by that is that we are to use the freedom that we have in Christ to act in a loving way. Okay, The freedom that Jesus has given us is to be used to love one another. So particularly verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Don't by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ has died. We're back at the barbecue. Sun's gone down, evening's moved on, mosquitoes are to your inside. And it's the same characters we've got... Terence, tough uh, conscience, eats all kind of meat. He's done so. He is full. He's got meat sweats. Theodore has been the brunt of his jokes all evening. 
And he started to think, do you know, actually, I'm not so sure anymore. I'm not so sure about these Christians. I was pretty convinced by, by Jesus being the Messiah. The arguments held together, and I could see how he fulfilled Scripture. But now, the way these Christians are acting, that the way they aren't loving me, the way they're using this, this liberty they talk of, I'm just not so convinced. What an indictment that as Christians we might use the freedom that God has given us to destroy some folk. Not to love them, but to, to bring them down. And Paul says that he, he is one of the strong, verse 14. Paul describes himself as one of the strong, the tough conscience. Verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is. Paul will happily eat meat. He will happily go to Oxford and have a bacon sandwich. But because of love, he is willing to forego that. For the sake of those with a more tender conscience. He will alter his behaviour. He will use his freedom to love them. It's a challenge in our culture, isn't it? Because we talk all about rights. And we're told to stand on our rights and to get and to take what you deserve. And we think Jesus has died to abolish the food laws. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to give up my bacon sandwich... Because that was what the cross was for. But Paul says, no, your liberty means that you love. The cross means that you love people and you serve them. So if meat is their issue, you don't eat it. If alcohol is their issue, then when they come for dinner, you don't serve it. If dancing is their issue, then the music goes off. If what you wear at the front is their issue, then you change your wardrobe accordingly. Whatever it is, so that we don't offend or destroy our weaker brothers and sisters. Because look what happens if we don't do that. Verse 15. Paul, he doesn't put any punches, actually. Verse 15. They are distressed. They might be destroyed. Verse 16, they might speak of what you know as good and say it's bad. Verse 20, we might destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It it can cause them to stumble. Verse 21, it can cause them to fall. And a church with that kind of stuff going on in it, that's not really what the kingdom is about. You know, Paul says, if you act lovingly, if you put this into practice, then you will reflect the kingdom. Verse 17, God's kingdom is all about righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, we're to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now, peace and mutual edification means we build up and we don't tear down one another. But to do that is hard. We make every effort. 
that's hard work. It's almost as if my natural heart is to think about me, and only about me, and what I can get out of this, and stuff you. But that leaves the church looking ugly, with factions and cliques and divisions, and people standing on their rights, proud, not willing to budge. But the kind of community that Paul is envisaging here it seems to me, is one of love where everybody else is looking out for everybody else. And we're all caring for one another. And we're thoughtful. Is the way I'm behaving an issue? Then I'll stop. Is the way I'm dressing an issue for them? Then I'll stop. How do I need to alter what I do, my behaviour, my priorities, to be loving towards them. How can I use this freedom in Christ that I have? This liberty to show them I love them. Not to serve myself, but to serve everyone else. So I've been reflecting on it this week. It strikes me this is an area of church life where we are to be people pleasers. Isn't that interesting? We're to shape our behaviour around the needs and concerns of others. Not so they'll like us, not to try and impress them, but so that they might see the gospel in action. So that they might see us using our gospel freedom to love them, to care for them, 